What are you willing to give? The answer to that question probably depends on a couple things, maybe who's asking it or who we are talking about giving to. And my guess is that there's a, a pretty small group of people in your life that might include your spouse, your, your kids, maybe your parents, some really close people that you would be willing to give virtually anything if their lives depended on it, right? Maybe you'd be willing to give your, your, your life itself or your, what supports your life just for them. But as we go from that group to a little larger group in our lives, sort of in concentric circles like ripples on a pond, we are probably less willing to give the further away those people are from the very core of our lives. And that's pretty normal human behavior, right? I mean, we have people that we're really close to that would be willing to give virtually anything. And then and then people we don't know as well, that we don't have an emotional attachment to, that we wouldn't give quite as much to or for them. And that seems a little cold, a little callous, and yet it is pretty normal. Except for Jesus. Because Jesus is very different from us. Now, Jesus had a close group of people. We know that Jesus had John, the disciple that he loved, and then he had Peter, James, and John, a little larger group, and, and then the disciples, the twelve, and from there it went to a, a big group of followers that, that listened to Jesus' teaching, saw some of the miracles that mattered, went into the hundreds and even thousands. But Jesus seemed to be willing to give in ways that we are not. And what would Jesus give to them? But what would Jesus even give to people like us? that have never encountered him physically, that we didn't sit at his feet listening to his teaching or see him perform any miracle. What is he willing to give to us? I want us to think about that as we continue in the series that I'm calling Final. And we're looking at the final days of Jesus' life. And today, we come really to the final moments of Jesus' life. And think about the, the story of the cross. This really is at the heart of our faith, what we talk about today and then next Sunday on Easter Sunday are, are the core elements of the gospel, what this is all about. And so it's important for us to explore these and let them speak to us and feed into us and help us to know who Jesus is and what he was all about. And so as we come to Matthew 27... And that's where we've been in this series, looking at Matthew's account of the last days of Jesus' life. As we come to Matthew 27, we're near the end. We've talked about Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and we've talked about going to the garden to pray with them. And in the intervening verses, what we find is that Judas betrays Jesus to the authorities. We see Peter denying that he even knows Jesus. Judas committing suicide, and now in Matthew 27, we find Jesus on trial. First, he's on trial with the Sanhedrin, which is the, the ruling council among the Jews in the first century, the, the very smartest of the people, the, the most powerful of the people, the people who have leadership skills, all on this council. And they try Jesus, and they want to be rid of Jesus. They want to be done with Jesus. Jesus, for three years, has been challenging the status quo, challenging the, them to rethink what it means to know God, to relate to God, and they want no more of this. And so they turn him over to Pilate, the Roman governor, hoping that Pilate will have him executed and they'll no longer have to deal with Jesus. And so in Matthew 27, we see a face-off between the most powerful force on the earth at the time, the Roman Empire, and the forces of heaven. 
at work against each other. And the question is, is it going to be heaven or is it going to be empire that wins on this day? Well, Pilate, who is the representative of the emperor in Palestine, he is the Roman governor. He really wants to be shed of his Jesus problem. He's not like the religious leaders who don't like what he teaches because Pilate really doesn't care what he teaches. Pilate's not concerned over the fact that the, the Sanhedrin has said that Jesus has violated one of our laws. And for Pilate, that's just a bunch of arcane rules and regulations that he probably didn't really know that much and didn't understand at all. So for them to say Jesus has done something that violates one of these rules, he didn't care. And yet he's got Jesus in front of him. He's got Jesus in front of him at a particularly difficult moment for a number of reasons. First of all, it's time for Passover. And that means that people have come from all over the empire and have converged on Jerusalem. It would be a crowded, busy city, bustling streets all the time because they're there to observe the Passover feast. And if something bad's going to happen in Jerusalem in the first century, usually happened at Passover. Because with all those people there, they began to think that maybe the words of prophecy could be true and that they could throw off the empire and rule themselves. And many people had thought Jesus was going to do just that. And so on that Palm Sunday morning, on this day, they had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as a conquering hero, thinking that he was going to throw off Roman rule and sit on the throne that Pilate was on. But it hadn't happened. And so here's Pilate trying to be rid of this man because with all the crowd, some people like Jesus, some people don't. The leaders certainly don't. And if he offends them, there could be trouble in the streets. If, if he lets Jesus, if, if he sentences Jesus to death, the, the followers of Jesus may be upset. And Pilate is, Pilate is prepared to deal with any problem. He always was in Jerusalem on the feast and he had plenty of Roman troops there as well. He could deal with an uprising if it came, but what he wanted was peace. He didn't want to have to deal with any of that. And this Jesus was upsetting the peace. So Pilate wants a way to get out of this. And the question is, how can he do it? He's also been warned by his wife, I've had a dream about this Jesus, this religious teacher, and it's really caused me a lot of pain, so don't have anything to do with him. So from the courts to his family, Pilate just really wants to be done with Jesus. He wants a way to get him out of his way. And he comes up with an idea. Every year at Passover, the Roman governor released a political prisoner. And so Pilate is trying to aim it so that the people will choose to have Jesus released and he can be done with this problem. So he says to this large crowd that's gathered, how about it? Let's release one of these two. Will it be Barabbas, who is a known criminal? Nobody wants Barabbas back on the streets. Or Jesus, this guy who's just been preaching. Surely the choice is obvious. Release Jesus. But you see, the problem was the choice was really obvious to the crowd, but it just proves how little Pilate really knew about the people he was ruling because, because they choose Barabbas. They want him to keep Jesus. And so he says in verse 22, 
What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They all answered, crucify him. Why? What what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. You see, Pilate's already had him on trial. He asked him questions. Jesus gave a a non-answer answer. The religious leaders made their charges. Jesus didn't say a thing. And yes, he says, Jesus is called the Messiah, but even though he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the King, I don't see him really raising up an army and causing some kind of revolt. So I don't see a reason to do this. But they say crucify him. Now it's interesting that they choose that. Because the Roman army was very efficient. They had ways of executing people quickly, cleanly, be done with it. That was not crucifixion. There were perfectly good words that the crowd could have used. Execute him, kill him, but they choose crucify him. Now, the Romans invented crucifixion with several goals in mind. They wanted to inflict pain, They wanted to humiliate the person, and they wanted to give them a slow, painful death. Now, they did that because crucifixion was designed to make an example of a criminal. If you did something that Rome wanted to warn everybody, this is what you don't do or you're going to be in big trouble, if they wanted to make sure that you don't do the kind of crime that this guy did, you crucify him. Make an example. That was the purpose And the crowd calls for crucifixion. They're disappointed. They thought Jesus was going to be sitting in Pilate's chair by this time, and he's not. They don't want him anymore. So they've called for Barabbas. They've called for crucifixion. Pilate has to make a choice. There's really no reason to have Jesus sentenced to death. No reason to crucify him. And so he calls for a bowl of water and he ceremonially, symbolically, washes his hands of the whole matter. That's what he says. That's where we get the saying. And then he turns Jesus over. And he says to the crowd, the guilt is on you, not on me. I know we shouldn't have this happen to him, but you want it. It's on you. And so Pilate orders that Jesus be crucified. Now, once that order came down, it wasn't like they just put you on a cross and that was the end of it. Oh, there was a long way before you got to that point. Remember, designed for pain, humiliation, and a slow death. So the first thing they did, and Pilate orders this, is that Jesus would be beaten. And what we know about this beating is that it was terribly severe and that there were many people who died before they ever got to the cross because of the severity of the beating. They died from this flogging. It happened. Now, I don't want to describe every gruesome detail. Lots of us have heard lessons and sermons that describe everything about crucifixion. I don't think we have to do that. But what we do know is that even from the beginning, it was severe. And from this point forward, if we imagine Jesus going to the cross on the cross, he's he's bloodied, he's bruised from the beating itself. And then from there, they get to the humiliation part. Verse 27, 
Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. It's a large group. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him in the head again and again. In this moment, in this face-off between empire and heaven, between evil and good, it seems like we know who's winning. These soldiers are mocking Jesus' claims to be the king, mocking the fact that he come, came preaching the kingdom of God. The crown of thorns, the robe, the staff, all symbols of royalty. And they think, they think they're mocking it. But what we find from the truth of Scripture is that in these moments leading up to crucifixion, what is happening is Jesus is going through a service of coronation, at the end of which he will be the king. And they take all that away, all these signs of public humiliation. Verse 31, after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. After that, it was a procession. First, Jesus is carrying the cross, right? The implement of his own execution. Jesus has to carry that to the place where he will be executed. He wears out from that beating. A man's pulled from the crowd. A man probably in town in Jerusalem for the Passover from his home in Cyrene. His name is Simon. They put, on the, put the cross on him and he has to carry it. And what appears to be a walk of shame, what we recognize in the end is actually a royal procession with Jesus having already been crowned and being waited to be lifted up. They're taking him to Golgotha, to the cross. Verse 33, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And then what strikes me here in verse 35 is what I see in all the gospel writers is a real, what I would call, an economy of language. In other words, very succinctly, very carefully, without many words, they put Jesus on the cross. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. The gospel writers don't really describe the process of crucifixion. They don't talk a lot about its gruesome nature. They don't talk a lot about the process by which someone was crucified and how they died. They just say, like this, there they crucified him. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is, if you lived in the ancient world, the people who read the gospels first didn't need a description of a crucifixion because they'd all seen one. In fact, most of them had seen many crucifixions. Remember that crucifixions are for pain, humiliation, and a slow death. And they 
they had crucifixions, they held them in very public places for that second purpose, so that the person would be humiliated. And so on the way into towns, maybe you're going to visit family, your parents or your kids, it might be that you would see several crosses. And on one or more of those crosses, you would find someone having been crucified, waiting to die there, because again, it's about a long, slow, painful death. They knew what a crucifixion was look like. Nobody had to describe it. But I think the gospel writers also choose not to do that because the point is not just the gruesome nature of the death. The point is that Jesus voluntarily went to that death. That was part of the plan. He was headed there from the beginning. And he chose this. He intentionally went to this death for us. And so there are other elements of this story that they tend to emphasize. But here we find Jesus on the cross and the soldiers beneath him gambling for his clothes and keeping watch. And then in verse 37, continued humiliation. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now they put a charge over the person's head to, to make sure everyone knew, okay, we're making an example of this guy and here's what he did. So if you do this, you might end up on a cross too. So don't claim to be the king. They're mocking Jesus once again for his claims of being king of the Jews, the anointed one, the Christ. And then the mocking continues, and it seems like it comes from everyone as Jesus is hanging there. The soldiers mock Jesus. The people just passing by mock Jesus. The crowd mocks Jesus. The men hanging on crosses next to Jesus mock Jesus. Everyone wants him humiliated. And then it got dark for at least three hours, noon to three, middle of the day, it's completely dark, and then Jesus cries out in verse 46. He's quoting Psalm 22. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is Aramaic, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? More mocking follows that. And then verse 50, the moment has come. That final moment. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And again, if we go back to this battle, this face down between empire and heaven, between evil and good, in this moment, it seems clear who's won on that Friday afternoon. It seems clear that evil has unleashed itself on Jesus and it was victorious. It seems like everything that Jesus and his disciples had been working for for three years is over and they lost. It's all done. Final, complete, finished. But what we find is even before we get to Sunday morning, and we'll talk about that next week, even before we get there, on the Friday afternoon, there are signs that this is not over. Verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. 
The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Weird stuff going on that afternoon. I mean, the very barrier between what was considered the dwelling place of God, the most holy place in the temple, the, the barrier between that and the rest of the world, this curtain in the temple is torn in two, not from bottom to top, not from side to side as if some human had done this, but from top to bottom as if God had done it. Because He did. God is opening up this new relationship with humanity because Jesus went to the cross. Because Jesus took my guilt and your guilt, all of our sin, and He took that on Himself. He took the punishment. He took the power of evil on Him until He was dead. And He did that for a reason. So to answer our question, what would Jesus do for us? Maybe you already knew. Jesus gave himself to give us what matters most. Jesus went to the cross. He took the pain. He took the humiliation. He took the death. He took the guilt. He took all evil on himself to give us what matters most. Forgiveness and eternal life. This Friday afternoon, even before we get to Sunday, changes everything. It changes everything about the very nature of humanity and what it means to live on the face of the earth and to have an eternity to look forward to. It changes all of that because even though evil, evil looked like it won, it had not. And it had used up everything it really had on someone who would defeat it. And so it leaves us with some choices. If you've been considering, okay, am I going to make a decision to follow Jesus? you got a choice. Jesus gave himself to give you, to give us, what we need the most. And you've got to make the decision, am, am I going to follow him? A couple weeks ago we talked about this, right? Faith, repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. We have to decide, okay, Jesus did that. What am I going to do? Am I just going to ignore it? Or am I going to receive what he offers me? And if you've already done that, we're still left with choices, right? Am I going to enjoy what, what I have, the, the gifts that have come to me because of what Jesus did? Am I going to treasure that and allow that to be part of my life and keep it to myself? Or do I want to tell other people what Jesus has done? I mean, we're coming up on a weekend when people are more willing to, to come to church at any time other than maybe Christmas. And the reason people go to a church for the first time most often is because someone they know invited them. So your chances of inviting someone and them saying yes are about as good as they get right now. Maybe they need to be here Friday night or Saturday morning or next Sunday morning to celebrate with us what Christ has done. So we're going to share that or keep it to ourselves. And, and finally, if Jesus gave himself 
Give us what matters most. How are we going to spend the rest of our lives? If Jesus really is the king, the king who took the guilt, the king who took all evil on himself, I've been invited to spend the remainder of my life serving the king. Allowing him to make me part of something that's much bigger than myself. And yes, it's about telling other people, but it's about ushering in what it means for God to be in charge, being part of the kingdom that the king has begun. Living in a way that shows that God's in charge of me and everything else. We've got a choice to make. Jesus gave himself to give us what matters most. How do we respond to that? Let's pray together. And we're so thankful for what Jesus did. It's at the heart of what we believe. God, we pray that the fact of the crucifixion, the truth of what it means, will transform us into the people that you want us to be. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.